If you're visiting with us this morning or, or maybe you have been away for the last couple of weeks, Hal has been going through uh, Paul's letter to Titus uh, with us the last few weeks. And I asked him before he left uh, on a short break this week, I asked him, you know, as I come up to do Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15, which is my passage this morning, I asked how how would you like for me to summarize what it is you've been teaching us in this letter. This is what he said. I wish I could mimic him, but I can't. He said, uh, Todd, you read the letter of Titus, and it's simply this. This is what we are to be like as Christians. You want instruction? Here's instruction. So what, what we've been learning in Paul's letter to Titus, we've been challenged, we've been exhorted that if God's grace has really gotten a hold of you and we're going to live different lives, we're going to be different people. This morning we're going to talk about God's grace appearing in the person and work of Christ and I'm going to challenge you that all those things that that Hal has been talking to us about the last few weeks Those things should mean something to you if God's grace has appeared to you in the person of Jesus Christ. So before we read our text this morning, it's printed for you in the bulletin. If you you have your Bibles, I would invite you to open it up. It's a a little letter. You can can put it right there in front of you because I'm going to be jumping back and forth. But, But let me tell you beforehand what it is I'm going to be saying. God's grace has appeared in the past. Jesus Christ has come. And, and listen, as I was preparing for this sermon, I, I am aware that many of you already know that. That God's grace has appeared in the person of Christ. But I, I, want us to, I want that to wash over us anew this morning. Because if there's ever a day that we take that for granted, uh, that's a day that we're not living out what it is we believe to be true. So listen, God's grace has appeared God has taken on flesh in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. He did this to redeem a people for himself, to set them apart so that they would be zealous for good works, so that they would be different than they were before they met Jesus. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. So let me read to you Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. This is God's word. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify purify for himself a people for his own possession." who are zealous for good works. And then Paul says this to Titus specifically. He says, declare these things, exhort, rebuke with all authority, and let no one disregard you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning that we can can hear words from you. And ultimately, Father in heaven, we thank you for 
Um, your word that has become flesh, Jesus Christ, our Savior, the one who has come to redeem us, the one who has come to, to make us new. Father, I pray that those of us who have met Jesus Christ, would we be renewed in our commitment uh, to be zealous for good works. Father, for those who may not know you or may be wondering whether or not they know you, whether or not God's grace has appeared to them, I pray that you would make it clear. We give you thanks. We ask that we would be faithful even as I speak and everyone listens. I pray that we would do this for your glory. In the name of Christ we ask. Amen. If, if you really believe, I mean really believe that something has happened to you in the past, that something is happening to you in the present, and, and you really believe that, that something's going to come along in the future as well, if you believe those things, it's going to change the way you think. It's going to change the way you speak. It's going to change the way you act. Ultimately, it's going to change the way you live. I was, I was just doing some cursory reading on the internet uh, over uh, past week, and I, I came across this Sports Illustrated article. I like sports. I like college football like I, I know some of you do. I follow a little bit of recruiting, and I was reading a, a Sports Illustrated article on how recruiting is going to change in the future, and uh, this is, this is from one of the articles that I read. The University of Michigan, and, and I assume if, if Michigan's doing it, other college universities are doing it as well, but this is about the University of Michigan, also about uh, Oregon State, but this article read, University of Michigan is developing systems where they can actually provide young high school football recruits with experiences of what it's like to actually play football as a Wolverine. They call it, it's, it's one step beyond virtual reality. They call it immersive reality, where they, they put you in a room or they put you in, in some type of apparatus and you're actually, you actually become a part of the content. Um, you're inside the movie, so to speak. And this is the way they, they described it. In the future, recruiting will be like this. Hit play... And suddenly you are in Oregon State's locker room for the pregame meeting and you're automatically compelled to take a knee. The coach looks as if he's right there in front of you. If you happen to turn around, you'll see every member of the team looking on. Later on, after the team meeting, you'll get to walk through the tunnel out onto the field and you experience that walk in a way that makes you feel like you are actually there. They notice that even the young recruits will be walking in a certain way, carrying themselves in a certain way, because they believe that they are actually there. Even during the game, you will sprint up the sidelines because one of your teammates has picked off a, a, an opponent's pass and he's running it down to the end zone. After the game, when spectators rush onto the field to celebrate, you instinctively recoil to avoid being knocked over. And I read that article, I thought, I, I thought Google Maps was pretty cool. It goes on and it talks about the realism of, of what's going on 
Um, Some of the recruits have walked out and said, it's addictive. I don't want to leave. It changes everything. And of course, they're, they're providing that to these high school recruits because, because what? They want them to make a decision. They want them to commit to their particular school because they know that, that if, if you really think something has happened to you, if you think that something is happening to you, if you think that it plays um, into what will happen to you, it will change the way you act. It will change the way you act and live and speak. What we have here in Titus chapter 2, Paul begins our little passage here by reminding Titus to remind the Christians in Crete of what's really happened and of what's going to happen again in the future. That's what Paul's doing in this section of Scripture. He says in verse seven or verse 11, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Paul is talking about reality. The grace of God has appeared. Do you know what that means? And, and I don't want to bear down on this idea of grace a little bit because there, there are different definitions out there and, and to some degree or another these, these definitions are right. God's uh, grace is getting something good that you don't deserve, right? That's God's grace. Another de- definition, the disposition of God toward us that leads Him to be merciful and kind and loving. That's God's grace. I mean, and you do read about that all over Scripture, right? Noah finds favor. That's the word for grace in the eyes of the Lord. Joseph finds favor in the sight of God. There are all sorts of examples, what you see in the pages of Scripture, that, that help us understand grace like that. But, but in this passage, you need to drill down a little bit further. Because grace is not simply an attribute or a quality of God. What, what you need to see here is Paul is saying... Grace is specifically an event. Grace is specifically a person because God's grace is most evident in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul's saying here when he says God's grace has appeared. Jesus Christ has come. The grace of God with saving power has appeared to all men. If you read the ESV, it's bringing salvation to all people. And that can mean all sorts of things. That's literally what it says in the Greek. One thing it can't mean is that God's grace saves everybody, because obviously everybody's not saved. But it does mean that God's, God has appeared to all people, not in a literal sense, but God has come in Christ at a specific point in time. Paul is making sure that Titus is going to teach this to the people of the churches. Grace has appeared to all kinds of people. Grace has appeared to all believers. God's grace grace brings salvation to believers. God's grace brings the potential of salvation to all sorts of people. The bottom line is this. In verse 11, this is what Paul is saying. Paul is locating salvation with the appearance and the coming of Jesus Christ. And realize that's a, it's a big deal. It's not just a big deal because we're Christians here this morning, but it's a, it's a big deal because of who Paul is talking to. You need to understand that Titus is on the island of Crete, and Crete has a particular reputation, right? If you go back and you read, you read chapter 1, here's the reputation. Remember verse 12? One of the Cretans, this is Paul writing, But he's saying one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, 
Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. You know why Paul says that? Because Cretans have this reputation in the world that they live in. See, they, they lived in a world where they, they believed in the Greek gods. You guys, I don't have time. I don't want this to be a sermon on Greek mythology. Um, but you do need to understand the context that, that Paul is writing in. You had, you had this, these stories of, of the gods... And the normal story went like this. Zorn was, Zeus was born of a couple of bigger gods, Kronos and Rhea. Right? Kronos had a bad habit. Kronos would eat his offspring. So Rhea, the mama god, didn't want his, her little eaten by Kronos. So she saves him, takes him away. And, and the story goes like this. That, that Rhea takes Zeus, puts him on a mountain in Crete. And over a period of time, Zeus grows old and powerful, and he becomes the king of the gods. That's the normal story that, that was around during this time. You know, you know what the Cretans did? The Cretans adapted the story. They take the story of Zeus, and they make it more, more helpful to them as Cretans. And this is what they say. They say, no, that's not exactly what happened. Zeus actually was a regular Cretan fella. He grew up among us. And um, because of his heroic acts, and actually some of them were quite perverse, and, and we'll leave that out, but because of his heroic acts, the real man who was a Cretan, over a period of time, he became Zeus. And Zeus is actually just this great Cretan man. And that's real good if you're a Cretan, but if you're not a Cretan, everybody else doesn't like you. So that's why they are referred to as liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. So what Paul is doing here, and this is where you need to, where you need to grab a hold of this, what Paul is doing is he's telling Titus that the world that you live in has made up stories to give their lives meaning and that story that they believe to be true leaves them with a certain reputation. Paul is saying, in contrast, there's a real story, there's a true story, and it actually happened that God's grace has appeared in the person of Jesus Christ, and because it's happened, it, Jesus, He, changes everything. God's grace brings salvation. It's not the, the cultural deception of Crete that talks about how they are great people. It's that God's grace has appeared to make you something different. And Paul is telling Titus, you need to tell the people this true story. Not only does this event of God's grace save us, he says, it teaches us. It teaches us to say no to some things and yes to other things, right? No to ungodliness, meaning we can't approach life apart from our Creator. It teaches us to say no to worldly desires, which are selfish impulses focused in on ourselves instead of outside. So this appearing of God's grace in the person of Jesus brings salvation not only brings salvation, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness, no to worldly desires, but it, it says yes to other things. It says yes to self-control. It says yes to being upright. It says yes to being godly. 
Paul is saying self-control, a serious intentionality, a soberness of life. Upright, the, the word is righteous. It means in accord with God's standards. Godly. You can, you can really define it um, by what Paul is saying in the rest of the letter. If we're to be godly, we're to live in light of chapters 1 and 2 of Titus. Doing things that are for the well-being of other people serving God. What Paul is saying is because God's grace has appeared, the, the, the trajectory of our lives changes. The Cretans believed certain things about their lives and it impacted the way that they lived. Paul is saying, guess what? God has done that to us, but it's good, it's right, because the, tr- the story of God's grace is true. The glorious appearing of God's grace gives us a new identity. It makes us zealous for good works, as it says in the passage. And let me, let me tie all this together for you for a second. Go, go to where Hal has been going, because one of the messages that Paul is trying to communicate here is you cannot separate who you are from what you do. You hear that? You can't separate who you are from what you do. Paul is, Paul is saying God's grace has come. You've been redeemed. You've been forgiven. You've been set apart, made into a special people, not special in and of yourselves, but special because you're God's. And because you are now God's people, you can be zealous for good works. And I want to get, I want to get specific here. What happens when you don't have all you need to do the things that you are supposed to do? What happens if you're a young person here and I were to, to, to come to you and say, hey, I want you to cut my grass and I don't have a lawnmower, but I'm going to give you some clippers. Go at it. You're probably going to get frustrated at me, right? And if you're a nice guy, you won't walk away. You'll try to cut my grass with those clippers. And you'll do the best job that you can do, but it won't be very good, will it? What happens in all of life when you know that you're supposed to be a certain way or do a certain thing, but you don't have the resources to do it? You'll either get frustrated You'll you'll be busy running around trying to get the resources in and of yourself to do what you need to do. But in the end, you don't have everything that you need to do to do it. So you're going to get frustrated and you're going to give up. Or you're going to lower the standards. You know what Paul says? Paul says, stop. Paul says, stop because the grace of God has appeared. And in the appearance of the grace of God in the person of Jesus Christ, you now have everything that you need to do to be who you're supposed to be. That's the appearance of God's grace. You don't have to go work in your own way to get the things that you need to get, to do the things that you need to do, because you can't do it on your own. God's grace has appeared. Look at it this way. And I've been here three months now. 
And I will tell you from day one what I have heard over and over again, what my wife Josie has heard over and over again is, what can I do to help you succeed? I mean, that comes from my fellow pastors. That comes from the, the, the ladies in the office, other staff members. It, it comes from the, the elders, the deacons, and many of you. All, I've heard it over and over again. What can I do? I mean, and, and not only ask the question, but, but like, I needed a phone, and all of a sudden the phone showed up. Wow. I, I, I didn't realize that... that I might need a few more chairs in my office, but somebody said you need some more chairs in your office because you're going to meet with people in your office. So boom, here are the chairs. People brought us food, took us out. You know what happened in that process? And and I want to say some of it was unconscious, some of it was conscious. But it was so evident that other people were looking out for me and looking out for my wife and looking out for my family that without even thinking about it, you know what happened? I just went to work. And the thing that kept going through my mind is, all these people are taking care of me. I sure better go out and find somebody to take care of myself. I could do for others because people were doing for me. Do you realize that's exactly what happens with the appearance of God's grace? That's what happens with Jesus Christ. We are given in God's grace, and specifically, we are given in Christ Jesus everything that we need so now that we can, we can go on and get on with all these things that Paul tells us to do in Titus that before Jesus came, we couldn't do. I mean, look, look, at, the, look at the Scripture if you have it. Remember chapter 1? We learned about what, what the uh, elders are supposed to do in this church. They're supposed to be not arrogant, not quick-tempered, not a drunkard, not violent or greedy for gain. Not, uh, they should be hospitable, lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined, hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught. You know why the elders are supposed to be that way? Because everybody here is supposed to be that way as well. Uh, what we heard last week, you are too older. If you're an older person, whatever that means, an older man... You're to be sober-minded, you're to be dignified, you're to be self-controlled, you're to be sound in the faith, you are to love, you are to be steadfast. Older women, you're to be reverent, you're not to be slanderers, you're to teach what is good, you're to train the younger women, you're to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands. And then it goes on. Paul is saying, guess what? You now have everything that you need to do what God calls you to do. And when we forget that God's grace has appeared, or we start taking it for granted that God's grace has appeared, when we forget what we have in Jesus Christ, we'll be so busy trying to get the things that we need for ourselves that we will never be able to get around to doing the things that we're supposed to do. Let me give you an example. I've got all sorts of examples up here. When you know that you are totally accepted in spite of yourself, right? If you have a if you have a a halfway accurate view that you're not everything that that you know you want to be, right? And yet, even in spite of that, if you know that you are totally accepted, that you're totally loved, um, that, that, and that when you know that you are forgiven all your sins as a Christian, when you're forgiven all your failures and your mistakes. What happens, I mean, when you're resting in that acceptance, what happens when somebody comes up 
to you and criticizes you. You know, if they're right, and you know that you're still, still loved and, and perfectly accepted, if they're right, you know what happens. You just say, you know what, you're right. Gee whiz, I didn't even know that. I'm sorry, please forgive me. And even if they're not right, if they're wrong, you don't get mad. You might sensibly explain what went on, what you were trying to do. But the one thing that you don't do when you know that you're totally accepted in Christ Jesus, the one thing that you don't do is get all defensive and self-protective because you don't have to. You have everything that you need in Christ Jesus. When God says you are okay, then you are okay. I want to push this a little bit harder. C.S. Lewis, I think C.S. Lewis was the one that said Christianity is not for the faint-hearted. What about intense suffering and pain and hurt and sickness? We have a lot of that going on in the church around here. We have a lot of that that, of, of our friends and family outside of the church, right? What does it mean that God's grace has appeared in, in Jesus Christ? This gets us into the second aspect, the glorious second coming. One thing that I haven't dug down on yet. Look at the grace of God has appeared, verse 11, verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. There's two appearings, right? There's one that's come in the past. There's one that's going to come again in the future. The first appearing of God's grace came in humility. The first appearing of God's grace came going to the cross and dying. The second appearing of God's grace will be glorious, will be mighty, will be powerful. So what does that mean for suffering and pain and hurt and sickness? I'm not saying, and Paul doesn't say, that it makes suffering any less painful. doesn't make suffering go away in the present age either. But I will tell you what God's grace appearing means for us who, who know Jesus. It does mean that we can engage this suffering with purpose and with power and with hope and we rest in the fact that God has come and we look forward to the fact that God will come again and the next time God comes in the person of Jesus Christ it will be with all glory and every tear will be wiped away and there will be no more sin, there will be no more pain and there will be no more death. God's grace has appeared, God's grace will appear again and next time it will it will. It will finish the job. You realize why the Lord's Day is, is so special, this hour is so special. It's not because it's not because of anything of ourselves, but it's because the one place that you come to each and every week that everything is turned upside down. Because when you go out into the world, whatever you do in life, and it doesn't matter what it is you do in life, whether you're a student, whether you're, um, I mean, you name it, teacher, doctor, lawyer, sales guy, mechanic, whatever it is, a, a, a mother even at home for that matter, raising her children. The world operates on these terms. You perform, you get rewarded. 
That's the way the world works. And there's nothing wrong with that. As far as the world goes. You perform, you get rewarded. If you're an A student, you're going to get an A. You are loved, so to speak, because of what you do. You realize here, and hopefully in your home as Christians, everything else is upside down. God says, I love you, I've fixed you, I've given you everything. It's done, it's complete. The performance has been taken care of by God's grace appearing in Jesus Christ. Now you go and do. When you experience God's grace, everything's changed. Everything turns upside down. Paul is saying God's grace has appeared because God's grace has appeared. You've been redeemed. You've been forgiven of your sins. You've been set apart as, as, as a holy people. And now you can be zealous for good works. Now you can do what you're called to do. And I, I don't know whether some of you buy that or not. I had somebody tell me the other day that that's just a crutch, right? I thought to myself, well, if I have broken legs, I want a crutch. It's like telling um, a paraplegic he shouldn't have a wheelchair. The bottom line is, you can come up with your own salvation stories, but then you're acting just like the Cretans. And I'm not going to call you, um, you know, evil beasts and lazy gluttons and liars, but... Cretans made up their own salvation stories. And if you're not going to see God's grace appearing in the person of Jesus Christ, you're going to have to do it on your own because those are the only two options that you have. Michael Horton says, um, we either seek to overcome our estrangement by ourselves or we can be met by the stranger. You're either going to try to figure out the resources that you need to get to do what you need to do and you're going to have to find them on your own or those resources are going to be found by God and given to you in Christ Jesus. That's the only two options you have. Let me put some finishing touches on this and, and then we'll, we'll meet Christ at the table. Rob's going to come up and he's going to... It's, a, it's a, a vivid illustration of what we mean by God's grace appearing. Before we go there, I do want you to draw your attention to verse 15. Declare these things, exhort, rebuke with all authority and let no one disregard you. I mean, Paul is, I think, specifically talking to Titus there. Titus is supposed to declare these things to the churches, to exhort these things to the churches in Crete and and rebuke with all authority. And I realize I'm not Titus, but the message is this. The one thing, the one message that we have to teach over and over again, the one thing that we have to declare, that we have to exhort, and that we have to rebuke with is the gospel of Jesus Christ, is the fact that God's grace has appeared. And because God's grace has appeared, because God's grace is going to appear again, we are enabled to say no to certain things and yes to other things because we've been forgiven of our sins. We've been set apart as holy, and we are called to be different. There is no getting around that. You're going to hear me, if I'm here for any length of time, you're going to hear me say this over and over again. Pretty sure it comes from Tim Keller, although I can't find it anywhere. I would, I'd like to be able to find it, but 
I realize that if I come up with anything creative, I've gotten it from somebody else. Sometimes I just can't remember who it's from. But Tim Keller says something like this, Before you understand what the grace of God is and does, before you understand that the glorious grace of God has appeared in Jesus Christ, you realize there's a limit to what you and I can do. You realize before God's grace appears to you, the things that God asks of you to do, you can't do. And that's why if you're an unbeliever here this morning, I, I think this is the case. I know I've only, I'll probably get in trouble for this, but not really. If you're an unbeliever here, we really don't want you to give your money. You hear that? Because what's supposed to motivate us to give is God's grace. And if you don't know Jesus, then you're giving for the wrong reason. Before God's grace has appeared, there's a limit to what we can do. And there's a limit, in some sense, to what God can ask us to do. But here's the other side of that. Once God's grace gets a hold of you, once you are united to Jesus Christ by His Spirit through faith, once God's grace gets a hold of you, there is nothing that God can't ask you to do. There's absolutely nothing that God can't ask you to go through. Because God's grace has appeared. Let that sink in. God's grace has appeared to you. There's nothing that He can't ask you to do and there's nothing that He won't empower you to do if He wants you to do it. Listen, if you're a believer here this morning, my prayer has been all week that God's grace would appear to you afresh, that you would be reminded that, that the God of the universe is taken on flesh that he's erupted into this world, that he's lived the perfect life that we couldn't live, and that we are united to him by faith, by grace through faith. And everything's that, everything that God has provided and given in Jesus Christ is now ours. You are forgiven, and you are righteous. And you are now a special people. Live out of that. If you're not a believer here this morning, if you don't believe God's grace is the answer, then my, my question to you then is, what are you hoping for? What are you placing your hope in? Because I would encourage you to look to Jesus Christ to see Him for who He is. And I would encourage you not to, um, not to make up or, or look at the caricatures of Jesus found um, on TV, but look for Jesus as He is revealed in God's Word and see what God's Word has to say because God's grace has appeared. Brings salvation to all people. He trains us to say uh, no to ungodliness and worldly passions, to say yes to, to self-control and upright and godly living in the here and now even as we wait for our blessed hope when Jesus Christ appears again, when He will make everything all right. He's given us Himself to redeem us. He's given us 
of himself to set us apart to himself so that we would be zealous to good works. We're to declare these things. We're to teach these things. We're to exhort these things because Jesus Christ has come. I'm going to pray. And uh, even as I pray, the, the elders and Rob are going to come up and, and we're going to uh, take of the bread together. Let me, let me pray. And as I pray, guys, you come up. Father in heaven, even as we prepare for your, your table, the Lord's Supper, where we are reminded that you have lived and died for us, person of Jesus Christ, I, I pray that you would um, wash over us anew the the, the empowering grace of God would, would overwhelm us that we would be reminded that we have everything that we need, everything that you've called us to do. Be with us now. In Jesus' name, amen.